Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. I'm glad that you're here. We are continuing through a series on the book of Acts called The Birth of the Church. And this morning, our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 3. You can follow along with me in your bulletin. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we go through this text together, that you would meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether in grief, whether in wondering, whether in exaltation, whether in joy, whether in doubt, whether in wonderment over over this passage. I pray that you would meet us, that you would speak your grace and love and presence into our hearts. Father, I pray that you would take great joy in us gathering before you, and would you let us see Jesus? Father, I pray that you would be with the one who teaches, for he has many weaknesses. Would you use me in spite of them? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're picking up sort of midstream in an episode that has taken place that everyone is astonished by, is astounded by, something amazing has happened, and Peter is trying to explain it. 
In the verses immediately previous to what we just read, a beggar, someone who was lame from birth, who couldn't walk, who had to be carried to the temple just in order to beg for basic necessities, he asks Peter and John, two apostles, for money. And what does Peter say? He says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have is I have the power of the name of Jesus, so get up and walk. And this man, amazingly, stands up and walks and goes into the temple courts, walking and jumping and leaping and praising God. And everyone's astonished. And Peter says, why are you surprised? God's plan all along has been to draw people to repentance and receive forgiveness. And that behind that, there's an even greater plan than just to get people to repent just to set people individually on the right spiritual path. But for hundreds of years, God has been working to bring about refreshing, which is a huge word that we're going to try and unpack. And this healing, this man leaping and jumping for joy is an indication that all of the work that God has done through the prophets and those that have come before him, before them, all of the the work that he did in Jesus is now come to pass that something refreshing is happening. We're going to look at the refreshing. What does that mean? And then look at repentance and what does that mean and how they're tied together. Now, in between my junior and senior year of college, I worked at a a summer camp. And we would take this long hike up to this high hill, And hills in Alabama are not super high, but this was considered a mountain by us because it had rocks on the front face. But And I also didn't know that Steve was going to tell a story about being very thirsty on a hike. So you can just remember his imagery because it'll be a lot more vivid than probably mine will. But we would take these kids on a long hike. Instead of taking elementary kids and middle schoolers up the face of the mountain where they would have to climb, which is dangerous. We, would find, we found this uh, hiking trail that was off the beaten path, and you could walk up the backside of the mountain, but it was far off the road. And so you had to park and walk for many, many minutes and probably a few miles with a bunch of kids in the summer in Alabama. And so it was blazing hot. And just to get there, you would use up a lot of the water that you had brought with you. And so we would walk out there probably with 12 or 15 kids in tow. And then we would let them take in the view, let them throw rocks off the side, whatever kids did. And then we would start to walk back. Now on this one particular day, as soon as we started walking back, the, one of the kids fell, tw- tripped over uh, a branch or something and twisted his ankle quite badly. And it just so happened that he, ha- he was the largest kid in camp that week. And so guess who got to carry him back? down the hiking trail. We traded off, but I carried him on my back across this trail in the blazing heat of Alabama. And after 30 minutes of this, though you've gone gone through the kind of warm, tepid water that you've carried with you, and you've sweated it all out, and you just can't wait to get back to camp. You're dreaming about cold water. You can taste it, and you want to jump in the pool as soon as you get back. But 
It was in, you know, we did have a cell phone. It was probably like a bag phone or one of the big white phones back then. But we called ahead to the camp and said, hey, don't worry, we're coming back. Would you get some ice ready? We'll be running behind because we have to carry this very large kid back to camp. (laughs) And so one of the counselors, feeling very gracious, drove out to meet us. And she brought snacks She brought water. She brought ice for his ankle. And, of course, we used a lot of the ice to cool the water. And it tasted so good, good as it only can taste when you're that tired, when you're that worn out. I wanted to get back to the pool, yes, but refreshment had come out to meet us in our time of need. Now, this is the image that we need to have in mind as we consider This passage because Acts is telling us a story, and Luke, the author, is connecting this story to this much larger, more ancient story that God has been telling from the very beginning. That ever since humanity sinned and walked away from God, that God has been luring us back with the promise of refreshment. That He's been telling us with images and stories and prophecy that this offer will take on an entirely new shape, that refreshment, true refreshment, will come in the Messiah, in the person of Jesus, that this time of refreshment will come from the very presence of God himself, and that there will be these strange occurrences, these miraculous things that will happen as a sort of advance anticipation of this final refreshment, that will come when God completes his task. Did you notice as I was reading, there are two different time frames here because it says in verse 18, but this is how God fulfilled, past tense, what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. There's already something that has happened. There's a past tense. He's reflecting upon what has just happened a few weeks ago in the person of Jesus, that he suffered, that he died, that he rose again. There's an already a past tense. But then the very next verse, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. There's an already a past tense of what God has already done to begin bringing refreshment, but there's a a future tense, a yet to come. And Peter knows this story because he's seen God make good on this promise just a few weeks or months earlier. The Messiah, Jesus, comes, and he was dead, and he was buried, and he rises out of the grave. He's refreshed to new life. And now this beggar is healed. And it says people were astonished. Maybe Peter is being a little ironic here when he says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? What are all of you looking at? Isn't this the kind of the thing that you would expect from the God who just raised Jesus from the dead? The whole Bible has been pointing to this right from the get-go. What's the big deal? What are you all looking at? Why are you surprised by this? Now, of course, it is a big deal. And Peter was surely a little giddy over the fact of what he is able to do now in Jesus' name. And Peter is not wrong to suggest or even to declare that 
a healing like this, that the restoration of this particular man has been the goal of God's story all along, that it's an archetype of some way, that in no small way it represents the type of refreshing that God is promising. There's a real and immediate restoration of this man, and yet it's still a foretaste, an anticipation of something even greater. Notice what is tied up in this healing, if you think about it. Not only does he get up and walk, not only is there a spiritual restoration, but he's restored socially. In that day, a physical ailment of this sort was seen as a curse from God. It was a punishment, and no one wanted to be anywhere around them because it might rub off in some way. This person is cursed by God. That's why he was born this way. It's his sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus, or Peter, in Jesus' name, raises him, and he's given membership again in the community. He's restored socially. Economically, he can't work. He has to be carried just to beg in front of the temple. But now he has strong legs. Now he can work again in this primarily agrarian culture. He's restored socially, economically, and, yes, spiritually. Where is he begging? He's begging outside of the temple. He's begging in this gate they call beautiful, which is just outside. It's the entrance in to the temple. But now he can go in. What does he do? He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He worships socially, economically, physically, spiritually. He is restored. And Luke is telling us, that there's something here in this healing that is indicative of the way that God wants to bring refreshing. The way that God wants to restore everything is tied up, is indicated in this healing, just as it was in Jesus coming out of the tomb. The salvation that God has offered from the very beginning is modeled in the healing of this man. Now, why is this important? Why do we need to see this? How does this land, how does this intersect in our daily lives? Well, those of you here who are skeptical, who are dubious about the resurrection, I would submit to you that you should want it to be true, that you, would, you should want the resurrection of Jesus to be true, that this healing is tied somehow to Jesus' resurrection, that you should want it to be true because most of you care very deeply about justice for the poor, about hunger in the world, about physical disease, about caring for the environment. Yet if you believe that the world was formed accidentally and that we'll all eventually burn up, then why care about these things? Why pour yourself out for other people if in the end nothing you do will ultimately matter? But if the resurrection is true, it says that those things that you care about, those things that are closest to your heart are very close to God's heart and that there's now, therefore, infinite reason and infinite hope to pour yourself out for the needs of the world. That social justice, economic justice, spiritual justice matters and it matters now. And to my Christian friends, why is this important? Because eight weeks after Easter, it's easy to just get on with life as if nothing has changed. That we celebrate what happened to Jesus 
on Easter, but then it's back to work. It's back to school. It's back to the same old routine. It's back to the daily grind. But it's not. If Jesus has raised from the dead, it's not back to the way things were. N.T. Wright, who has written probably most convincingly about the facts of the resurrection, doesn't just, is not just uh, content to stay with proving the resurrection, but he wants to explain also why it matters. And he says the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world of injustice, violence, and degradation, in a world where those things are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. In other words, in all of the big problems of the world, global poverty, environmental degradation, human disease, terrorism, tornadoes, as well as the little problems of our individual lives, loneliness, relational breakdown, discouragement at work, spiritual wonderment that God longs to bring refreshing. How easy it is to miss Peter's message first delivered just a few weeks after that original Easter. But because of what happened then, because Jesus really did rise from the dead, because Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those prophetic hopes that God outlined in his story of how he was going to refresh the world, because Jesus really was that person. We can and now should have real hope to anticipate a whole new world, a world where we should expect life to just bust out all over. That's what happened with Jesus That's what happened with this lame man, that life busted out and he was remade, that he was realigned with his purpose, with who he was made to be. He had a whole new relationship with God and a whole new relationship with the world. And what this passage tells us is that there is a coming time, not only where you and I can have a relationship renewed and restored with God himself, with the creator, but he's coming to restore everything. Now, that's tied in some way to repentance. And in what way? How so? Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now, we expect following this rhetorical question, a prediction of some sort from the Old Testament that points out that these things are going to happen. You see, I told you so, because so-and-so verse says that this will happen. And there are places that Peter could have chosen in order to do that. But instead, what does he do? He recounts how they are implicated in the crucifixion of Jesus, which fulfilled God's plans all along, and then says, repent. 
so that times of refreshing may come. Now, repent is a a threatening word because many of us have seen repent on billboards or placards or we've heard it used from really angry people. But it leads to refreshment. And what does the word actually mean? Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. And in it, he tells a story of a father and a teenage son who were estranged from one another. And the son's name was Paco. And Paco had wronged his father in a pretty serious way. And as a result, in his shame, he had run away from home. And then the story, the father searches all over Spain for Paco, but he couldn't find the, find the boy. And so finally, in the city of Madrid, the capital, in a last desperate attempt to find his son, he puts a an ad in the daily newspaper, and it says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Now, the father in Hemingway's story prays that the boy would see the ad, and then maybe, just maybe, he would come to the hotel. And on Tuesday at noon, the father arrives at the hotel, but he can't believe his eyes for what he sees. An entire squadron of police officers has been called out in order to keep order among the 800 young boys that turns out turned out to be forgiven, each one of them named Paco. And each one of them had come to meet his respective father and find forgiveness in front of this hotel. 800 boys named Paco had read the ad and hoped it was for them. Now, for Hemingway, he makes it rather funny. It's a bit of a joke because of the ubiquity of the name Paco in Spain. But it only works because of the underlying need of the human soul to be forgiven. 800 Pacos had come to receive the forgiveness that they desperately desired, to empty the shame that they apparently carried around. Peter, in this sermon, isn't improvisational with his assignment of sin. He's not guessing as to what it might be. He says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You asked for a murderer to be handed over to you. You killed the author of life. And they're faced with overwhelming guilt at what they had done. Condemnation. But who's giving this condemnation? Who is bringing them to understand their guilt? It's Peter. It's Peter, the one who's implicated in his own indictment, the one who misunderstood Jesus' plan, the one who abandoned Jesus, the one who denied him and ran and fled. He's the one that is pointing fingers because the fingers point back to himself just as much. And he's been restored. He's been forgiven. And what this text is telling us is that what Acts is telling us throughout the whole book is that the author of life speaks. Among our deepest questions as humans is, is there someone else in the universe? Is there someone real who speaks? Is there a creator who is personal and who can speak? And so much of our literature is filled with talking animals and talking trees and talking things, wondering, is there someone else in the universe that can speak? 
And what this text says is that there is a God who speaks. He's the author of the world. He speaks the universe into existence, and he speaks grace over you. He offers you new life. You killed the author of life, and yet, and yet, Peter is the one preaching. He denies the author of life, one of his closest trusted allies and friends, and he walks away from him and then is restored. Are you living this morning under a, a crushing cloud of shame, crushing guilt? Are you lacking assurance that God is really for you, that he's really placed his love upon you, and that nothing can take it away? Peter is confident that grace is available and that that it can rid you of that guilt and shame, that crushing burden that many of us carry around every day. How? How does it begin? What does he suggest? What does he say? Repent then and turn to God. Change your mind and change your direction. That's what he's saying here, that there is a certain feeling of remorse, of sorrow over the sin, over the things that we have actually done that brings real guilt. And that we say, God, would you forgive me? I'm sorry for what I have done. That's repentance, but he doesn't just stop there. It's not just remorse for past action, but it's a complete alteration of the the basic direction of life. Repent and turn to God. That word we often translate convert, conversion. Repent and believe the good news. Be converted. Whether you've been converted before, what this text is saying is that you never leave that moment, that the way that you're converted really into the kingdom of Jesus, that you need to rehearse that, replay it, relive it over and over, that you never get past the gospel because that is how you grow. That's how you get rid of this crushing guilt. That's how you begin to care about the things that God cares about in the ways that he cares about. Convert again. In Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, Huck is told that if he doesn't, doesn't turn his friend in, Jim, a runaway slave, that he will surely burn in hell. So one day Huck, not wanting to lose his soul to Satan, writes a letter to Jim's owner telling them of Jim's whereabouts. But after folding the letter, he starts to think about what his friend has meant to him and how he took the night watch so Huck could sleep, how they laughed and survive together. He reconsiders, and he realizes that Jim's freedom means his hell, that Jim's salvation means that he must endure hell. And he rips the paper and says, all right then, I guess I'll go to hell. In a moment, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus descended into hell. And there's some bit of debate over what the early writers in the second century thought that meant. But whatever it meant, if he literally went to hell for three days or if he went to hell figuratively speaking, what they certainly were trying to capture is that what Jesus experienced in the cross and in death 
was hell-ish, that he experienced the cost of sin, that he underwent the punishment that was due for those who would kill the author of life, the penalty due to the very people who crucified him. And he's faced with the decision, them or me, they pay or I pay. In order for them to get life, I must go to hell. In order for them to get refreshment, salvation, I must endure the horrors of hell. And what does he say? I guess, all right, I'll go to hell on their behalf. And therefore, no one has ever repented and been rejected. No one has ever turned to God and gotten a void because Jesus turned to God and got the void. Everyone who then repents turns to God and turns to God, gets light, gets embraced, gets welcome because Jesus turned to God on the cross and in the tomb and found the void. He found the rejection and he absorbed it for you and for me so that when we go to God, we receive embrace. We receive spiritual salvation forever. And not only that, heaven must receive him, verse 21. That is, he didn't just remain in the tomb. He didn't just remain on earth, but he went to the very presence of God where heaven is. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his prophets. That's the story, friends. That's, that's the invitation. Humanity has gone wrong. You have gone wrong. I have gone wrong. And what does God do? Does he wag his finger at us? No. He says, come and be refreshed, be restored, be renewed, and participate with me in restoring everything. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot to get our minds around, and it may be more easy to believe that the witnesses of your resurrection were actually telling the truth that, that you came out of your grave, Jesus, but it's harder oftentimes to believe that, that we can, whether that grave is for real, that when we die that we will be raised, or just the darkness and death that we experience on a daily basis that you could really enter in and resurrect us and refresh us. And I pray that you would. I pray that this church would be refreshed and restored and renewed so that we can participate with you in your restoration of all things. Lord, we pray that you would make it so. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.